run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Jeremy Green. Hi. And our special guest this week is Eric Dietrich. Hello. Dietrich? Dietrich? Did I? Now that I've introduced you, did I get that wrong? Is it Dietrich? It is Dietrich. Okay. Very good. And uh, I'll at least try to pronounce my name correctly, Reuven Lerner. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Everyone else mispronounces and misspells it, so it's only it's only fair. Um, and this week, we're going to be speaking with Eric about uh, the future of labor. So, Eric, why don't you introduce yourself for our audience so they can know with whom we will be sparring slash discussing. Sure. My name is Eric Dietrich, and I have been um, – I followed sort of a traditional software development path um, up through the ranks and eventually became an executive. Um, and then I got tired of that, and in a move that a lot of people would have thought maybe was a little bit crazy, I decided to leave an executive role, go off on my own, and become a consultant. Um, so I have a number of years of solo consulting under my belt. These days, um, I run a uh, digital content marketing agency aimed at tech firms, and I still do some consulting, but not as much of that. Um, and uh, speaking specifically about what we're talking about here, uh, during the course of all of this, uh, wrapping it up about a year ago, I wrote a book um, uh, about uh, software development and the future of labor, uh, specifically knowledge work. Um, and uh, so that's what brings us to the moment here uh, in discussing this topic. Excellent. So if you read like, you know, newspapers, magazines, predictions, and so forth, the assumption is, you know, software is eating the world. And so, you know, as they say, or as Mark Andreessen says, and so we're going to need more people to write software and more people to write software means everything is just hunky dory for people who know to write software. Um, so my impression is you have a slightly different take on that. Um, I, I certainly am inclined based on what I'm seeing uh, to agree with the idea that the demand for software is just you know, uh, constantly running at an all-time high, it seems like, especially uh, given the consulting that I've done in enterprises, which has been a lot of the focus over the last three, four years, uh, they are eternally having trouble hiring software developers. Um, so I certainly think that you're going to continue to see a lot of demand for software development. Um, I do think that you see the enterprises in, in a way that often hurts them try to commodify that labor. Well, uh, knowledge work is what I think of it as, but kind of commodify it and turn it into labor. Um, so it, it gets a little interesting in that I think at times they're demanding something that doesn't or shouldn't exist in the way that they think it does. Um, 
But all of that is to say, I don't, I, I don't see anything to suggest, at least based on my travels, that software will stop eating the world in the near future. Definitely agree on that. I like the distinction that you're making between labor and knowledge work. And I, you know what? I, I don't honestly know what the technical definition of labor is, but I always picture it as uh, more manual of a process. Not that typing is not manual, but you know what I mean? Like, like factory labor or and I'm sure the U.S. government has a very specific definition of the word labor. And I imagine... Uh, from my sort of experience coming at this world from the pricing standpoint and hourly billing, that it's a kind of offshoot or a, a, a grandchild of scientific management and trying to turn the sort of Henry Ford assembly line <clears throat> model into something that works in a knowledge economy, which to me sounds, just seems like a terrible fit. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And in fact, um, it's interesting that you mentioned scientific management and uh, and Taylor. I talked a good bit about that in my book. And um, so I admittedly don't know probably the def dictionary definition of labor either, but um, you're absolutely right. I was drawing a distinction there in, in the scientific management sense of um, labor being where you try to separate the thinking from the doing. And um, what I've seen over the lot of, uh, a, lot, a lot of the years in working with these enterprises um, is that there tends to be this desire to keep going with that, even when it made sense for physical manufacturing labor, but not for something like programming or something that requires um, generally knowledge work. You can't really meaningfully separate the thinking from the doing, and yet that's still kind of how these firms uh, operate. So one of the reasons I see um, kind of a, this exodus coming uh, over the next number of years is that they can't seem to wrap their collective brains around that, and um, it creates a pretty... Um, unpleasant work environment that, that tends to make it hard for them to hire even as they have money to pay and, and there's a lot of demand. So Eric, I'm thinking that this attempt to separate kind of the thinking from the doing in these enterprises probably often manifests, manifests itself in the types of structures where you have like the software architects that pick the technologies that are going to be used, you know, dictate coding styles, you know, kind of try to dictate everything that's going to happen and then pass off a set of specifications to people that are, you know, quote unquote, lower down the chain to implement. Is that accurate? And are there other ways that that happens? That is absolutely accurate. Um, you see a lot of that. I think perhaps the um, the idea of the software architect, the genesis of that is is maybe the most emblematic thing of what we're discussing here, where you have this sort of experienced software professional that's going to do the you know heavy lifting when it comes to thinking. And then the line level software developer or whatever you want to call it is just kind of taking those structures and turning them into reality. And um, I've actually seen, you know, depending on uh, the particular enterprising group, I've seen even more extreme versions of that where you have this hierarchy of people uh, even below the architect, um, where by the time it gets to the person who's writing code, you've stubbed out every single method and the parameters and the return values and all of that, it really trying to turn it into paint by numbers with these elaborate matrix systems and a lot of people that maybe don't need to even be involved. Um, so that's, yes, absolutely. I, I would say um, if you're trying to relate and you haven't seen these sort of structures that um, 
the architect to developer paradigm is a good example. How is that different from, and I'm sure there are differences, so I'm really asking her, like, from, let's say, an in-house uh, legal team where, like, the head lawyer um, says, well, here's the strategy we're going to pursue, and basically dictates to the lower-level lawyer uh, what to do, and the lower-level lawyer more or less just follows the directions. Granted, has to do some research and work, but they're really doing a lot of grunt work, albeit high-paid grunt work. So I think that's an interesting point of discussion because I imagine that there are certainly some similarities. Um, in terms of the difference, uh, say, the way that goes, it, it's hard for – I do some comparison in the book um, uh, of what I see the future being to uh, software developers banding together and behaving perhaps more like partnership-based legal firms. Um, in terms of – the internals of a firm that has um, partners and junior partners and then associates and all that, there may be some similarities. Um, but uh, let's see. I, I, I don't know that I would. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't see it. The same. I don't see the law. I don't see the parallel as much like the law firm to me is a firm. It's not like a. I mean, I suppose giant law firms exist, but to me, it's more like the apprentice model, which is not what's happening inside of corporate. So like in corporate, the development team is not like the core competency of the organization. So like when I worked, you know, my one corporate job, I was at Staples and I was in the, I was in IT at Staples in the advertising department, but I was, you know, I was a cost. I was not, we were not building some software that was going to be like a customer face. I mean, some of, it wasn't really customer facing in some cases, I guess it was, but it wasn't like a core thing. Like we sold staplers and it wasn't any, there was no, there was very little upward mobility really. There wasn't much of a, uh, like if you wanted to go way up to the, the highest, the highest levels of this company, you didn't do it in IT. So it, to me, the law firm parallel is more like the agency model on the developer side. It's closer to that. It's like an apprentice thing where, you know, from, from the studio of Michelangelo, well, he didn't paint everything. He had a bunch of people who would paint stuff in that style and they would sort of learn by doing it. It was more of a community of practice where in the, in the corporate world, it's just like, you know, Hey soldiers, get some stuff done for me. Just creative execution, like go type you know, type this stuff up for us. Well, that's why I was asking about a, like a corporate law, legal department rather than like a law practice. Because I, I agree, like the, I, I think in many ways, software engineers could benefit from the same sort of structure as, or a similar structure to what uh, accountants and lawyers do in terms of their large partnerships and so forth. But I'm curious, like inside of a company, you often have a legal team and maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe companies shouldn't have an internal legal team and they'd be better served by having an external one. Um, but I'm curious to know like how that is similar because I assume in a corporate legal team, and, you know, I've never been a lawyer, but I assume there like the head lawyer says this is what we're going to do and the lower level grunts are just sort of required to do it. Oh, it's, I could be wrong about this, but my um, my understanding of the way that an uh, in-house legal department works is that I don't th I think that's fairly flat, and that you've got these um, lawyers that are staff, but then what they wind up doing is going out to um, actual law firms that specialize, uh, depending on what they need. That the the in-house legal team um, 
depending on the organization anyway, is uh, sort of a point of contact. They're almost generalists that know how to find the specialists. Um, that may oh. not be the case at say, if, if you've got a company that's like um, real estate specific, you know, there, there may be differences out there, but that's always been my impression of how these um, large enterprise, uh, uh, large enterprises work with their legal staff. That's not a bad analogy for, for how it could be done, actually. Yeah, actually. And so in the book, that's kind of um, uh, that that's one of the things that I talk about that I see if this exit is um, happens that would it's not that that um, firms where IT is a cost center are going to just stop having anything IT related that that couldn't happen um, or that they would stop having software development. But I see that you'll have maybe more and more a role that's um, some kind of knowledgeable software generalist, perhaps project manager ish. And that person knows how to go out and find um, agency app dev firms that are well suited to the work that needs to happen. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, basically built a company uh, on this exact belief, which is that it will be impossible uh, for you know big companies to attract any kind of good talent internally because you know what kind of software developer wants to go work for like three you know like printing labels? They just don't. You know, they're not going to move to some place in the middle of nowhere and, go, you know, commute into work and sit in a cube all day. They just won't do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the ones that will are not the ones you want. So what's the, uh, you know, and, and so my, my friend's whole premise is that uh, these large organizations that can't attract the talent, and I think we've all seen, uh, you know, I've certainly seen companies who are just, like you said, constantly in the state of trying to hire developers and they can't. There's always positions open and the demand is really high. Uh, so my friend's theory or, or his premise is that they will never be able to hire them and that they will always need or the, the need will increase that they will have to go out to these software partners that have really talented people that, that understand, you know, the sort of beekeeper mentality of how to keep developers happy and, you know, can attract that talent and then in, engage with someone inside of the organization, like a product owner or uh, some sort of advocate at, rel at a relatively high level, at a strategic level, and then, you know, identify what the desired outcomes on, are and then just sort of execute it as a, almost as a black box. And then, you know, they get the result that they want, but they're not really that involved uh, in the, they, they, there's no way to micromanage it which is what seems to, in my limited experience in corporate, that, that was what you'd get. The sort of, like you said, the stubbed out, you know, here are the stubbed out, here's this waterfall spec, basically. Just go finish it up. Mm -hmm. How's the, how's that firm doing? Great. Yeah, I can imagine, um, the, the rationale there, um, definitely resonates with me and my experience in dealing with these firms. Um, I've dealt with them a lot on um, sort of the strategy management consulting and helping them build org charts and set up hiring processes and trying to attack track talent. And one of the things that's really frustrating for the, the people there is the constraints that they face. Um, a big one is that you've got this uh, heavy 
you know, very weighty in a pyramid shaped corporation amount of salaries for the leadership and executive um, levels. So it's not like a, a small firm where if you want to hire a software developer and your budget for that is a hundred thousand a year in salary and you're not finding anyone, you can just kind of crank that up by 10,000. You can't do that at these firms because you've got all these, you know, structured management salaries. Um, <laughs> so that's perhaps the most straightforward <clears throat> example, but it's also things like trying to get around certain legal policies related to open source or the dress code. And so you You've got these um, hiring authorities that want to do away with all that stuff to make it easier for them to hire, and they can't. And so they have to go to the uh, job market, you know, with this description for a job that they know just won't attract people. And so a lot of them do. They wind up um, figuring out ways to either bring in contractors or to to deal with firms. Mm-hmm. So Eric, you're you're not uh, just to, so I can better understand this. You're not saying um, programmers going to leave big companies you're going to say you're saying they're going to leave big non-tech companies like basically um so if you have like i don't know an ibm they might stay there because it's a technical company and they reward um like they understand technology but uh, i don't know a supermarket chain right where they need it they're not a good place for a developer to be because well you know they're not going to value the uh, it department and the computer people is did i understand that correctly Yes, absolutely. Or do you think IBM's out of business too? <laughs> I mean, I, so I think there will be a spectrum, at least based on the enterprises that I've seen. Um, if you look at, there are some big, you know, I think of it uh, sometimes on my blog, I'll call it Enterprise Silicon Valley. There are big firms, you know, like Google or Microsoft that are certainly enterprises. But I don't think that they'll have trouble keeping software developers. That's their bread and butter. Um when I think of the firms that are going to struggle, it's you know governmental firms, uh, banks, major retailers, manufacturers, that sort of thing. Um, and then there's probably some organizations that are in the middle. Um, I, I can't say why exactly, but IBM strikes me as maybe not quite as um, easy a time keeping developers as, say, Google or Microsoft, but wouldn't struggle the way that um, uh, banks might. Um, I don't know a lot directly about IBM. That's just kind of a feel I have. But yeah, that's the gist of it. That I think you're you're going to see these um, these firms that have historically treated IT as a cost center just sort of more and more give up on trying to staff those positions, and your talented software developers aren't going to go there anyway. Um, so I think more and more in line with, I guess, what's called the gig economy, I think you're going to have these small firms um, that form to deal with them, maybe solo contractors, but I think they'll kind of clump together into firms. And I've even seen evidence of that just in my time there where people literally leave those companies and then turn around and contract to them. Right. Yeah, I've seen that plenty of times too. Yeah. I know when I was working at HP, and again, it's like a technical company, but there was a lot of worry about how they weren't compensating, like the like basically technical people tried to move up in the ranks, and they hit a wall where if you wanted to make more money, well, too bad. It's sort of like what you're saying, you know, what you said about these, you hit, you hit a ceiling in terms of how much you can make because you're just not core to what the company's doing. And even though HP was a, and, and is a technical company, it still was the case where if you wanted to make more money, you were going to have to uh, go into management or marketing or something like that. And so they created this uh, separate track where you could make more money and they would sort of you know, value you still uh, if you're on the engineering track. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know if that really – I mean, first of all, there's a very limited number of people who could do that. Um, and second, secondly, I don't think they really were compensated in the same way. Uh, but 
I, I find it hard to believe, hard to imagine that large non-tech companies would even see this as an issue, let alone do it. Yeah, I mean, you might get individuals in them, in middle management that read about that somewhere and try to implement it. But um, in, in these large companies, that's going to be a real uphill battle that'll probably die in various committees, <laughs> you know, before it even gets started. So I think of that as the distinguished um distinguished software developer track or whatever you want to call that. Um, yeah. I think it's a great thing to do, but in some ways I think it kind of punts the economic problem just a little bit to, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know what they pay these folks or where they top out, but I, uh, what I'm assuming is it kind of gives you this like um, escape valve that lets you get around uh, having engineers only have line level salaries and maybe it lets you have them compete with the manager, but they're still going to top out somewhere. Right. Speaking of banks, I, I saw a definite trend uh, working with credit unions where v really virtually all of their core IT systems were outsourced to third parties or basically, you know, like SaaS type businesses like Fiserv. I think Fiserv is one of the biggest software companies in the world. I think it's in the top five. And just just a monster, like a massive company compared to any of their customers, which it, it started. Who to are they? Pfizer. <laughs> Pfizer. Pfizer. I've I've never heard of them. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm pretty. Last time I checked, I am pretty sure that they are in the top five <laughs> globally. And yeah, you never heard of them because they they just do these sort of back office IT, you know, like check processing and, and uh, ACH transfer, transfers and all of that. They take all of that sort of, they sort of mitigate that risk for the individual credit unions in my case. And they, you know, they have these massive systems that a credit union could never manage on their own at this point. And really that, that seems like, um, it seems like a tr that trend makes sense. It makes sense that they would do that, kind of outsource their back office IT. Uh, but there's this, it just feels like a dead end to me because then how do you differentiate yourself from the next, the, the community bank across the street if you're both using Fiserv? It's like you are both limited by the same, you both have the same limitations. So it's, they end up competing on price, like fees or loan rates or whatever. It, it becomes like a, a sort of, a curse almost. But there's another thing that comes up and I, I'm curious what Eric thinks about this. So traditionally, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 50 this year. So back in the day, IT was solely a back office operation. It was for accounting and operations and perhaps supply chain, but it was all internal applications that were used by employees and nothing really was customer facing. So, you know, you, people would, whatever, like a sandwich Burger King or something, you'd go in, you just like deal directly with people. And it really wasn't any software that the cost, the end user, the customer was actually interacting with. Then when desktop became big and now mobile is just completely eclipsed that now there's this customer facing, you know, they'll call it like a, you know, mobile channel. I don't see it like that, but that's the term. It's like, oh, now there's this mobile channel and it's like, or retail, it's a directly customer-facing retail IT situation. And it, it's been my experience that people who came up in that sort of back in the day when 
I, the IT department with these guys who like worked in the basement and made sure the made sure the you know checkbook <laughs> process are not well suited at all for the kind of software engineering and development and design that needs to take place to impress somebody you know a J Crew shopper you know with yeah. their, their mobile application it's just a complete you know people are like oh well you're all geeks no it's completely different skill sets <laughs> so they just yeah. don't make the transition very well. Yeah, that's certainly the truth. Uh, it, I did a lot of research about the history of the corporation and, and IT specifically for my book. And I remember my dad, who was in finance all his career, talking about how initially um, uh, IT groups tended to report to the CFO for exactly those reasons. And that's mm -hmm. kind of, you might even find the occasional firm where that's still true today. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's um, one of the things that I talk about, you know, the, the book that I've written is rather lengthy. And one of the things that I talk about in it, um, is the need to develop a different sort of skill set. So in in this world where you're going to have um, a lot of software developers moving out of the cubicle and I guess in that sense sort of anonymity in which they toil away and um, if they're going to be in these um, firms, these smaller firms that get contracted with, it's kind of a surface area thing where those small firms, you have a lot of surface area, so you're going to need a different set of skills. Um, Part of that's going to be business skills, uh, because one of the things that I see going forward as you have these, you know, small firms is that the uh, I would like to, and I think they will kind of operate more like law firms, where instead of you know you wouldn't get a bunch of software developers in one of these that get together and hire someone to like manage and then VP over them. So you're going to uh, delegate those tasks um, if you have like project management and certain types of things. Um, you're going to hire people on in order to do that. And so I think that there's a lot of dovetailing there with the idea of um, having the skill set necessary to help your clients, say, if you're developing these mobile channels, um, to help your clients with their customers, uh, perhaps uh, deal with some of that support. Um, I don't know exactly what those relationships look like, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you're going to see less and less as the years goes by of this idea that I can just kind of sit around and um, look at bits and bytes all day and not do anything besides that. Not that it'll go away entirely, but I think you'll see fewer people doing that. Huh, that's an interesting thought that, that the, uh, like I know, I know plenty of developers whose kind of attitude is I want to sit in my cave and code and I don't want to talk to absolutely anybody. Uh, and like what you're saying is kind of makes me think that's really a, a relic of kind of how things have been done previously. And, may not you know may be less of a kind of constant internal state for people than i may have assumed previously yeah i, I think um number one i think that's sort of as you say a relic and i also think it's self-defeating one of the things i talk about a lot yeah. is i mean look at like for me personally i i love days where i sit around and do nothing but code i'm an introvert by personality so that's great but i, I also see how much i'm leaving on the table if i in essence go to a company and say I just want to code. I don't want to worry about anything else. They say, well, okay, there's a lot more to business than that. So if that's all you want to worry about, we're going to pay you accordingly. So I think if, if people get more and more clued into how much better they can do economically and just in terms of having autonomy, they'll, they'll kind of make that jump and maybe give up this idea of, I just want to sit in my cave. Yeah. And that also, you know, limits your ability to solve problems because you, if you're of that mindset that I just want to sit in my cave and code, they, you know, they're probably not going to bring problems to you and ask you to solve them. They're going to bring a set of steps to you and ask you to implement them. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, this is what I talk about all day long. It's like if you just want to sit in your basement and code, go get a job. Like, don't like freelancer. I think I think a lot of freelancers will sort of you know either get fired or they'll quit they get fed up or whatever and they and they go out and like hey i developed this skill somehow either in my free time or at this job i want to go out and start charging by the hour for it because i've been underpaid at work and they do that whether it's you know for financial reasons or like you say autonomy you know they're sick of commuting or sick of the dress code or sick of the cube whatever it is they go out and they're just like oh i'm just going to keep doing what i was doing before i sit at my desk and i i you know i get work from clients now instead of from my boss and i'll just execute it and give it back to them and it's like, no, you're not an employee anymore. You are a business owner now. You're an entrepreneur for crying out loud. And there are, you know, just like there are good and bad ways or, you know, safe and dangerous ways to build, I don't know, an iOS app, there's a safe and dangerous way to build a business, which is what they have suddenly, p- perhaps by default, without even thinking about it, have done. They've started a business and ha- with zero business skills. So, I mean, that's, that's literally the void that I'm, that's the gap I'm trying to personally cross in my, in my work, like that getting some business skills to those people. So they're not leaving so much money on the table. Cause you're hundred percent right. It's just like, okay, if you just want to take orders, then here's some orders, you know, but you're almost everybody. I mean, that's pretty broad, but so, so many people could be doing so much better for themselves and for their clients if they would step up a little bit, take some responsibility and, you know, come out of the cave and actually talk to the people on a business level and be like, well, okay, well, okay, I see these are the things that you want me to do. That's great. I can do these, but let's get at what you're hoping to achieve with this stuff. I know you're not just giving me money for fun. Let's let's see if we can develop some sort of a business outcome here and make sure that these steps that you've assigned to me or that you want me to do for you are actually going to achieve something desirable <laughs> to your business. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40-gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks, and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code FREELANCERSHOW2018. That credit is good for four months on their one-gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is Freelancer Show 2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com slash careers to see their available positions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with what you were talking about there, one of the things that, that I see a lot in people that write into me who have read the book or who read my blog um, will We'll sort of ask for advice in in these situations. You know, I'm a I'm a freelancer. I'm a contractor, and I have this situation. And then what they lay out to me sounds identical to having a, a W two salaried position. In mm-hmm. essence, yeah. um, I have this client. It's an open ended thing that's going on for two years, and I'm unhappy, and I'm thinking about leaving. And the thing I try to impress upon people is what you're describing is a job, whether they. He was a 1099 or a W2. And, you know, that's sort of academic. If it's open-ended and you're hourly and you have no other clients in sight and you're not thinking about that, like there's really not a lot of difference there. 
Yeah, except you don't have health insurance. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what what can and should uh, developers do to take advantage of this? Like, let, let's assume your vision of the future is accurate. Um, so, like... Well, what should they do? What what skills should they learn? How should they should they aim to be freelancers? Should they set up businesses? Should they set up partnerships? Should they read your book? Um, well, yeah, I'd have, I'd <laughs> certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from reading the book. Um, I've, over the course of time in writing it, and then and then since, as people read it, um, I've kind of coalesced into giving some advice. Anybody who thinks they might be interested, especially depending on the state, I've been saying, go ahead and set up, you know, some kind of LLC. Your filing fees probably aren't that expensive. It probably gets you enough tax breaks that it almost is budget neutral, even if you don't generate revenue through it. Um, and it's worth the experience. And then another thing that I say is in your salary job, like if you're looking uh, to go off on your own uh, eventually, or if you think that might be a goal, start to understand the fundamentals of a business, you know, things like sales, account management, uh, operations, finance, not at any kind of deep level, but enough. What would this look like if I were a contractor instead of an employee? Who would I send uh, invoices to? How does invoicing work? You know, I, I recommend to anybody to start learning that. And um, one of the big premises in the book that I talk about advice-wise is start to think of yourself in your corporation, not as a member of the team, but as a corporation of one dealing with a client instead of employee with um uh, employer. And that starts to do some interesting things in your mind, uh, including making the gears turn about, well, how would I get paid and how would I bill? And, you know, why is anyone paying me? You start to ask a lot of <laughs> questions and, um, and that starts to in turn, I think naturally teach you some things about business. I love that. Yeah. That's super cool. It's, it's one, it's one of the, it reminds me of advice I give to people when they are, they are already out on their own and they have this kind of, like you described, this open-ended hourly engagement with one whale client, you know, they basically are, are a low paid employee and I, and they're doing basically support type work, maybe a little bit of implementation, maybe a little bit of creative execution. Uh, but they're basically mopping floors and fixing doorknobs and, you know, in the digital sense. So, and I'll, and I'm always trying to impress upon these people, like, like what the way to increase your fees and therefore your income is to do work that's more valuable to the client than the work that you're doing now. The work that you're doing now might seem super important, but it's maintenance work basically. So, or, and maybe, maybe you're building a few things here and there, but it's, it's not the highest level that you can engage with. The high, a higher level would be to help them design things. So design the future. What is, instead of being told what the future is going to look like here, can you go implement it? And once you implement it, can you keep it clean? Then you, you move up the, up the, the, the chain to a place where you're deciding what the new thing to build is going to be. You're working with the client to help them decide what you're going to build next. Why should you even do, the, you know, what is the right way to do it? What's the right way to go about it? And get into either, you know, things like um, uh, application architecture or user experience design or whatever. It's just like planning stuff. Like, like, hey, here's a vision of the future that might be nice. How would we go about it? Oh, we'll probably go like this. And then out of that would come some plan that you or someone else would implement. And if you, the, the way to do that, 
sounds very similar to what you kind of described there, where what I suggest to them is, first of all, look for any opportunity. If anybody ever asks you for your opinion, which is actually pretty rare um, in a situation like this, but if someone does ask you for your opinion, pays very special attention to that. And if they, and especially if it's not specifically about what you're working on. So if somebody says, Hey, you know, I, I know this isn't part of what you're doing, but we're thinking about releasing this new thing. And we know you're, you understand network security or something like that. Would you mind jumping into a meeting with the, the CEO and uh, just talking it out and just kind of brainstorm for, you know, a half hour with you? Don't get all like, Oh yeah, well, that's going to cost you like, you know, my hourly rate. <laughs> Like, no, that, that's an opportunity for you. You say yes, you do not talk about money. You go to that meeting and you be as smart as humanly possible. You ask smart questions, you push back, you test their assumptions, you be a consultant. And that, that doing that more and more will help kind of get you out of the friend zone, as I call it. Because it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to get out of the friend zone, right? Like they need to start seeing you in a different way. And if you have any hope of moving from this sort of maintenance or implementation uh, level of the operation up to more of a strategic level of the operation, they need to view you in a different way. And the way to do that is to, to do it, you know, to, to actually give them good advice, to ask them smart questions and to point them in the, in the right direction. And, you know, worrying about being on the clock or off the clock in a situation like that is, is completely missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> I like the the friend zone terminology there. It is one of the hardest things, you know, in in watching uh, both people consult with organizations and work for them. If you are in kind of implementation world, getting people in leadership positions to listen to you is is a hard thing to do. So, I would absolutely agree that you want to jump at any opportunity like that. And then, what's the phrase in sports? Is uh, I hear announcers say when a player scores a touchdown and does a dance, like act like you've been there before. Um, if you immediately start <laughs> quoting the CEO your hourly rate, it doesn't seem like you've been there before. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I totally hear what you're saying, and it I, uh, it seems to ring true with me. At the same time. I know that there are a lot of companies that are, you know, keeping IT staff in-house. And I even sort of thought that that was happening more and more. Am I missing that trend? Um, I, I just feel like there are far few agencies. Like, I mean, I've been doing web stuff now for over 20 years. I guess I really don't do it that much anymore. I do mostly training. But, I mean, there was a period of time when everyone their brother was starting up an agency. And everyone was like, you know, and everyone was using agencies. And then it felt like it sort of died back a bit, but it could just be my perception um, that that we're anticipating a wave. Or anyway, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, in as I was writing the book, my sense was that this would be something you'd see over the course of say a decade. Um, so what I imagine is that like kind of it seems like all things in the IT world that there's going to be. Um, a pendulum that's swinging. So everybody tries to ship software labor overseas. That creates all sorts of problems. So everybody <laughs> brings it back uh, on shore, back and forth. So I, I can imagine some pendulum action, but I think, you know, my prediction is, and it's possible we'll assemble a decade from now and I'll have been completely wrong. But I think that if you, you know, adjust for the pendulum swings, this is the trend that you'll see. Um, and I don't, let's see, in the year or so since releasing it, I don't, um, have any data specifically it might be an interesting thing to go do some research and you know see if if there's someone out there compiling statistics on you know what employment rates are versus um the number of agencies and the people employed by them so uh 
a lot of this is based on my travels and experience, what I think will happen. Um, but I, you know, I'm not entirely sure what will. There's another sort of, I feel like things like Upwork and Fiverr and 99 designs and those sort of marketplaces are kind of muddy the waters about the, like your question, Ruben, and, and other, other things like GitHub and Stack Overflow, where the barrier to entry has, it seems like it's lower than ever. And to find, and to find, uh, really, I don't want to, I don't want to like throw everybody under the bus and say it's all low quality talent, but it's certainly, it's certainly the closest thing to commodity labor that I can think of in the space. You know, you just, you just go to whatever you go to, uh, Upwork, you do a search, you sort ascending by hourly rate and <laughs> you go to the, you go to the spot that you feel comfortable and you look around at a few, few of their reviews or whatever. And so I feel like I, I don't see exactly, like, I can't articulate exactly how that it, I can't articulate how that exactly would impact the, the, um, the difference between, oh, I want to be an in-house developer or I am an in-house developer versus I'm going to start an agency. I feel like it's a, like a brand new third option. It's like a wild card that is affecting the, the perhaps the pendulum swing of where, you know, maybe the pendulum's not going, le- you know, back and forth. Maybe it's going around in a circle between those three, uh, three options. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, if, if I were thinking of this and how I'd try to categorize it, you've got I guess like individual contractors that are sort of the closest thing you've got to a commodity, then you might have these um, kind of tiny firms. Like I know um, some people that were working at these enterprises and broke off to form these little agencies of two, three people. And then you've got, you know, progressively larger agencies. Um, So I don't have a ton of opinion among those groups of people uh, where it's all going to shake out. I do have the feeling that it will be among those groups and out of the big sort of traditional enterprises. Now, could it could it be? And I, I'm curious. I'm not just like trying to play devil's advocate. Could could it be that? Um, I mean, because you're describing sort of a, an in some ways an ideal software world in which knowledge workers are treated well and they get to make their own decisions. Could it be that not all businesses want that, or that there's room for you know, programmers are just sort of are, are less creative, less value based. Um, when you say not all businesses want that, um, you mean that they would just rather have sort of a traditional command and control Taylor-esque structure? Yeah. So um, the trouble I see with that is uh, I've worked with a lot of organizations whose that's really in their DNA, and those are the ones that tend to have trouble with it. So I think collectively, at least for the time being, and I'd say the foreseeable future, software developers as a unit have enough leverage that um, Taylor-esque corporations are going to have a hard time dictating to them what their working conditions should be. Um, obviously, that won't mm-hmm. apply to every individual developer. You might get, you know, the uh, aforementioned person that would just want to sit in their cave and maybe they don't care too much about their wage or what have you. And you do see people like that, you know, wind up at um, some stodgy old institution for 20 years. So, I mean, I think there's a place for that. I just think the trend will move away from it. And man, mm-hmm. what, a, what a horrible horribly like of what am i trying to say here uh, the, to me the reason to have like a 
corporate job like that, an in-house job, is that you can just focus on your one thing. You can just be the, you don't have to have like all of these other business skills. You don't have to think about that. You don't have to think about sales or, or setting up an L, nothing. You can just focus on whatever you, JavaScript, whatever you do, Java. But that seems like, you know, so, so it's like, oh, and, and it's like security, like the check comes every month. But to me, that is such a scary position to be in. Like maybe it's just my personality because yeah, I would love it if I could just do my, my, the favorite parts of my job all day long and just money would just appear every month. That'd be cool. But it's, I, it just scares me to death to imagine how interchangeable that is, how, how the slightest thing could, you know, you're almost by definition, if you're that type, you're almost by definition, hard to get along with (laughs) or not, not at least, at least not friendly. And I think there's a huge number of jobs though, where that's what people have, and they are happy with that stability. Um, but, yeah, but those are the and, jobs that get outsourced. Like we are sick of this guy right. and, we're, <laughs> and we're paying him a ton of money because, you know, cause salaries, you, you, it's like cost of wage, uh, sorry, cost of living increases. Even it starts to add up and like, you know, what does this guy even do? It just, some, to me, it's like a horrible, it's probably just my personality that I'm, I'm sure there are tons of people that are super cool with it and they're friendly as anything. And they, you know, <laughs> but Man, like that would feel so risky to me. Like if I was if I was back at Staples, and I, and I know these I know these dudes. I worked with them, and as soon as as soon as there was a downsize, they were the first people to go. <laughs> I, I think your description is apt about like they're the not not about them not being friendly, but like they're they're they'd be the first people to go because they have the most um, easily transferable skills um, to other people or commoditized skills. Yeah. But I remember in like 2008, I remember saying to my accountant, because like here in Israel, as well as many other places, there were a lot of layoffs happening. I said to my accountant, boy, I'm, I'm a little nervous about my consulting work because like they're going to all be all these layoffs from high tech and suddenly I'm going to have all this competition. And he said, are you nuts? He said, no one wants to be a freelancer if they've been used to a corporate job for a long time. They want that stability. They are more than happy. You know, people are, are willing to accept a lot of things as normal. And I see this crazy that I have to ask someone else, like, can I take a vacation? Right. But like, <laughs> you know, I got really upset with my PhD advisor when I needed to get his approval to take a va- take vacation time. Uh, and yet many, many people are totally okay with that. But are they developers? So yeah, like, there I are think plenty they're... of corporate developers. I, when I worked at HP, I remember them telling me that there were a lot of people who went away, like from like they they came to HP in their twenties after college, and then they went away to work um, at other companies, like at startups, like their thirties, and then they came back in their forties because they were willing to uh, make less and have less excitement and have less job growth for the stability. Fair enough, but I. I'm not saying those people don't exist, but it is, I know from plenty of anecdotal information that lots of companies are desperate to hire developers and they can't do it. So Mm -hmm. I think that kind of, like maybe those people exist, but there aren't enough of them. Fair enough. They also, um, what I've seen, um, a lot of them will settle into this sort of weird codependent relationship with the company where they're, um, they're really facile on some aging tech stack like uh, COBOL 
or early, um, you know, enterprise Java kind of things like legacy stuff that's sitting around where I've actually helped some organizations who try to modernize simply because the only people that could work on the tech they had were aging out of the workforce. Um, so I think you'll see this, uh, this kind of, you know, I think of it as codependent, like the employer employer sort of mutually unhappy with one another, but it's predictable for both of them. So they, you know, live their lives. Right. Yeah, I see that that happening a lot too. Where where the people who are internal, they feel like you know the the pile of code that's grown up over the ten years that they've been there is like their baby, and nobody else can touch it. And it's it, the, the problem, and it's this sort of legacy code base. And maybe it works okay, but there's a tendency, and I think it's pretty common. I don't think it's just my skewed viewpoint that those legacy code bases are actually holding they're usually developed during you know maybe in the 90s like pre even pre like first internet bubble and therefore are not built in the way that sort of modern software is built and is holding them back from being able to do things in a more uh, you know release new features more quickly and be more competitive in the marketplace so it's kind of like a, a lot of legacy let's say you're sort of the the curator of the legacy code base you know when that gets outsourced to fiserv you're gone dude (laughs) yeah (laughs) right that is um it it has a lot of security uh, for years even decades right up to the moment it doesn't because a lot of um, the consulting i've been involved in over the years is strategizing about how to get out from under this situation. So yeah. if you've got, you know, four of your six uh, Delphi developers or whatever aging out of the workforce, for those other two, when the company finally decides to do something about it, that's going to be a whole lot of upheaval. Yeah. And and I've known people that have kind of been stuck working on these types of leg- legacy systems who have finally just gotten enough and said, you know, I, you know, one particular example, I had a friend who worked at a place where they would try to deploy features every six months. And when they did that, it was just a, you know, hair on fire. Everybody's staying up all night to get this thing out the door because they never deployed with any regularity. So they didn't have good processes around it. Um, and the whole thing was just this really terrible situation. And, you know, he's seeing people talk about continuous deployment and deploying four times a day. And, you know, he finally just decided I want some of that. You know, that's what I want to do. I, 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 I cannot deal with this crap any longer. I'm out of here. Uh, and that kind of triggered like a big mass exodus at this place because everybody else kind of realized, oh, yeah, just the environment and the culture here sucks. Uh, we want to get out and, you know, do new things instead of being stuck maintaining this 90s era ball of mud. Hmm. Well, Reuven, you work with uh, your customers. Are obviously have lots of developers on staff. So, would you say that your uh, are are they mostly like super duper tech focused companies that are that we're writing software as a mm-hmm. core competency for the business, or is it mostly yes. de- okay? Yeah, I mean, like I'm trying to. I, I was just trying to think that now, and there are. I mean. Yeah, they're all technology companies in some way or another where, I mean, I worked with this company recently, I gave them a course where, like, they do software for dental offices. So, like, granted, like, a lot of the people who work there are not software people, and it was a surprisingly small group of software engineers working on this product, 
but they were still like, you know, they were still central to the company and what it's doing. So what's the, what's the takeaway for the listener? So the, the listener is either a freelancer or is thinking about becoming one soon. So what, what would you say, Eric, to that group of people who, uh, you know, what, what are the trends that they should watch out for? What are the things they can do to ride this wave that you predict? So I guess in the in the broadest of terms, I would say um, that I think you're going to see a rise in the so-called gig economy, and I think you are going to see this exodus. So whatever you might want to do, however risk-averse you are or where you feel you're best suited, uh, I would recommend at least being aware of this trend and um, understanding what it means for you, which I would say is to become more business savvy and more well-rounded and to stop thinking of um, – employers as these custodians of your career that you have to take that on for yourself because it's um, if this comes, even if you want to be an employee, um, you're going to have work that tends to be a lot more transactional, which might mean that you have to search for more jobs or that you're going to have more turnover around you. So I think you need to start thinking of yourself as your own business of one, uh, whether you act on that uh, in the legal sense or not. Killer. Very good. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, I think that's a great place for us to uh, stop talking about this and move on to picks. Um, Eric, did you bring any picks with you this week? Um, tell you about picks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I probably know the the drill. Um, I actually do uh, a weekly column on my blog where I'll do some picks. Um, let's see. One of the the ones I'd offer is. Um, because I'm location independent, I use this um, new service that we just got called PostScan Mail. You can have um, them send uh, mail to this physical address, and this company will scan it in and send it to you as an email document. When we're on the road, that's how I uh, manage my mail. Um, and I guess I can cop out by, given the nature of the discussion, uh, making another pick my book, Developer Hegemony. Very nice. And people can Excellent. find that on Amazon? Yeah, it is on Amazon. It's it's a real book or an ebook or <laughs> not to disparage ebook authors <laughs> hey, hey, hey. on the panel here. Yes. <laughs> um, there you can get it as both a print copy and an ebook. Uh, much more deftly said. Good. <laughs> uh Jeremy, you got any picks for us this week? Uh, I do. I have a, an email course that I offer through uh, one of my products, Remark, uh, that is aimed at helping consultants and freelancers uh, do things that will help them increase their fees by demonstrating more value to their clients. Uh, you can find it at increaseyourconsultingfees.com, and that will redirect you to the right place. Excellent. And I assume the advice is not add a zero to the end. It's a, little it's, more sophisticated it's a little more sophisticated than that, but you know, that's, that's kind of one of the end goals that we're getting at. <laughs> Excellent. Jonathan, what you got? Uh, this week I am going to pick the Dyson V8 cordless vacuum. Uh, we have pets and have to vacuum basically every day and lugging like a bigger plug-in vacuum out of the closet and setting it up and assembling the device. We end up not vacuuming as much as we probably should. So uh, Dyson vacuums are on the pricey side, I think, but um, 
man, it is it is really, really good. So if you have pets and uh, <laughs> you don't want your socks to look like mohair, then this is definitely <laughs> like, this is, this is where it's at. It's super light. It's really powerful. The battery lasts long enough to do like the entire floor, uh, you know, of, a, of like a good size house. It's, it's really nice. And I, we just, it's just great. You know, just grab it, boop, 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 and put it back. Super cool. Big fan. Um, oh. yeah, so I can highly recommend that. And as usual, I will pick, uh, my email course, valuepricingbootcamp.com. You can go there to find out, actually it's reasonably related to today's topic about not being a commodity, changing the way you price, not billing by the hour and coming up with other ways to present yourself to your clients in a way that will be more valuable to them. And therefore you can charge more money. So you can check that out at valuepricingbootcamp.com. Excellent. Um, so for me, uh, listeners of podcasts know that I'm interested in politics and history and podcasts. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of talk, I don't know why, uh, over the last year or so about Watergate and um, you know, Nixon <laughs> and resignations and so forth. And um, so so um, now the thing is, I mean, I was really too young during Watergate to remember anything. Uh, the fact that I actually was alive during that time, I guess that's me apart from most of our listeners. But an increasing number of my clients, but I digress. In any event, <laughs> um, so the thing is, we tend to think of news in the modern way of it's just this torrent of stuff coming out all the time. Imagine, though, during the early 70s, you got your news on the radio and TV and the newspaper, but it worked way, way, way more slowly just for things to come out. So there's this fantastic podcast called Slow Burn from Slate, where it's, I think, eight parts, 10 parts, something like that, of what was it like to live through Watergate? And what were the personalities? And what was it like on TV? And what was it like to sort of get your news fix once a day at most? And um, they, they talk about the personalities, they talk about how it plays out. And I have found it to be um, absolutely fascinating and fun to listen to, and way beyond the, you know, I am not a crook, and then resignation of uh, Nixon and all the stuff uh, beyond that. So highly, highly recommended. And with that, I guess we get to the end of the show. Eric, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was fantastic. Thank you um, for having me. And as usual, Jeremy and Jonathan, thank you. Cheers. So long. And thank you to all of our listeners out there. And uh, we will see you next week on The Freelancer Show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that was. What was that? that? Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.